Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. For today's episode, I am pleased to bring you the audio version of my recent live stream conversation with Dr. Jamie L.H. Goodall. Dr. Goodall is staff historian at the Center of Military History for the United States Army in Washington, D.C. She's also the author of the recent book, Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay, From the Colonial Era to the Oyster Wars. I hope you enjoy the program. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's latest Washington Library Book Talk Tuesday. I'm Jim Ambusky of the Library Center for Digital History. It's really nice to see some, so many of our old friends on tonight's stream, and we're delighted to welcome those of you who are joining us for the first time. And so just a reminder that you can watch earlier live streams by going to mountvernon.org slash gwdigitaltalks. And if you want to hear more from some of your favorite historians, be sure to check out, out excuse me, I got choked up. I was so excited. Be sure to check out Conversations at the Washington Library, the podcast that I also host by going to mountvernon.org slash podcast or by wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Now, during the American Revolution, the Chesapeake Bay was a pirate's nest. The men who plied the bay's waters had shifting loyalties, competing interests, and also a keen sense of how to use the law to legitimize their actions. And in fact, they are part of a much richer history of piracy in the bay. From the 17th century through the 19th century, pirates were a constant feature of Chesapeake society. They connected the bay to communities they connected the Bay and its communities with the wider Atlantic world and even to the Indian Ocean. And in later years, they battled local authorities for control of the Chesapeake's lucrative oyster trade. With me to discuss tonight's uh, uh, book is Dr. Jamie L.H. Goodall, staff historian for the U.S. Army's Center of Military History. She is the author of the new book, Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay, from the Colonial Era to the Oyster Wars, and she's going to help us unpack the Pirate Skull Duggery. Dr. Goodall, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Where are you uh, coming to us from this evening? Um, I am just outside of Baltimore, Maryland. And so how are things for you there at this moment with uh, you know, the COVID-19 and everything else? Um, things are pretty good. We are in phase two of reopening and right now it is storming. So if you hear some thunder in the background, that's that's what's going on. Well, it seems like a, a particularly uh, appropriate uh, weather for this, tonight's discussion. Yes. Well, um, I'm excited for tonight's discussion. I really enjoyed the book, and I look forward to getting to it. As you know, we've got a host of people watching us from uh, around the United States and, indeed, around the world. And so for our viewers out there, just a reminder that we'll feature your questions in the second half of today's program. So please do post them on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. And uh, also, uh, posting a question enters you to win a copy of Jamie's book, which I have here in my hand. So uh, please get your questions in often and early, and we look forward to talking uh, with you in the second half of today's show. Okay, Jamie, thanks again for being here. We're really excited to have you. And, and I first, I thought we might start out by asking you, you know, about your position there at the U.S. Army Center of Military History. What, what does it mean to be a staff historian, and what kind of work are you doing? So my main focus is on responding to research requests from the public or from uh, various military officials. I also conduct oral history interviews with military officials, whether it's at their end of tour or uh, about things like COVID-19, for example. Mm -hmm. And I'm also responsible for writing various uh, military histories, uh, book reviews, short products, uh, book length uh, materials, that sort of thing. 
So, and right now you're, you said you're working on a project related to COVID-19. Uh, I don't know if you can share any of your findings, probably not specifically at this moment, but um, what is your general sense of how, uh, how the Army is responding to these events? I would say that the Army responded very early and very quickly to the COVID-19 crisis. Um, when it comes to the ways in which the nation responded, I think the Army was sort of at the, the helm so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so my responsibility right now is to conduct a chronology of the Army's response to COVID-19. And then surely when we face a similar crisis again in the future, this work will help inform how uh, the next generation or even in the next few years, people approach uh, a similar crisis. Absolutely. Well, that's terrific. And I mean, I'm glad you're doing that work. And I think it'll be very, very valuable indeed. So let's talk about pirates, though. Because uh, that's we're certainly here to talk about pirates. I see your your skull and crossbones in the background, which is terrific. Um, very menacing. Oh, it's got red eyes. I didn't see that. It does. <laughs> that's particularly terrifying. Um, you know, I, I wanted to talk about definitions because in our, our popular imagination and our, our popular culture, we say the word pirate and that connotes certain images. So you know, Captain Jack Sparrow, the fictional pirate from the from Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, Captain Blackbeard, uh, who was a real pirate, is actually featured in your book. And, you know, folks on the North Carolina coast will certainly know who he is. Um, you know, hell, if you're in college, you should certainly know who Captain Morgan is. But, you know, as we're <laughs> thinking about the term pirate um, and, and thinking about definitions, I first wanted to sort of ask you, you know, what fascinates you about these individuals? You know, piracy and pirates are a serious uh, subject of inquiry. And so what got you started in these topics? Sure. Um, I'd love to say that I have always had a fascination with pirates. I would love to say that I loved them from the time I was a child. But the reality is that I never really gave them much thought until graduate school. I was in my master's program and I was taking a class on European imperialism. And during one of our readings, I had come across a quote that had compared uh, Sir Henry Morgan to Sir Francis Drake, calling him England's second coming of Drake. And I wanted to know more about that. And so I wrote a paper comparing the two men, their exploits. Um, and it wasn't until I submitted that as my writing sample to the PhD program that I found an advisor who was very interested in taking that subject of piracy mm -hmm. and carrying it through my doctoral dissertation work. And so that's sort of what led me to studying pirates through the PhD. So it was just one of those moments where you decided to, to pursue a topic that you found interesting while taking a class, and then all of a sudden you've got these multiple projects. And I do want to talk a little bit about um, the book that I believe is is coming out of your dissertation at the end of tonight's talk. Uh, before we, you know, before we we close out our business here, but uh, focusing here on the on the pirates of the Chesapeake, and thinking about pirates actually more generally. I mean, one of the things you you say in your book is that when you, if you look in in the dictionaries, they give you definitions of pirates and privateers. These are very very specific definitions, but you know, the, this historical reality and the lived experience of these peoples is, is much different, you know, and, and, and some of the ways that your characters complicate these definitions, but, you know, defy any attempt to place them in either category. So can you give us a sense of how you understand what pirates are and in general and then what motivates them? Right. So from the Elizabethan sea dogs through the so-called golden age of piracy, pirates were known by many different names, uh, buccaneers, corsairs, um, commerce raiders, privateers, rebels. 
uh, any manner of, of naming conventions. So I understand pirates to be those whose primary undertakings was to disrupt commerce via the waterways. So mm. whether that's by sea, by ocean, even by river. Um, but pirates also operated on land, much like Sir Henry Morgan's sacking of Portobello. So really it's the manner of disrupting commerce. And for me, there's not much that differentiates pirates from privateers in that regard. Privateers' main uh, role was to also disrupt trade. Uh, the only thing that differentiated them was perspective. So mm -hmm. if you were on the side who had granted legitimacy to the privateer, obviously you viewed them as a legal extension of your imperial authority. Whereas if you were at the... Uh, attack side. So the Spanish, for example, viewed all manner of attacks as piracy as opposed to privateering. Um, privateers were really no different from pirates except for the letter of mark. And the thing about the letter of mark is that privateers very often crossed the line mm -hmm. into piracy because they attacked vessels that their letter of mark of nations that their letter of mark didn't allow them to attack. Um, many of them figured it was better to ask for forgiveness as opposed to permission um, because their letter of mark specifically stated the name of the nation's vessels that they were legally operated to attack. So it's a very fine line between the two. Mm -hmm. But really, the, the main thing is that both were designed to disrupt commerce. Can you just very briefly remind us again what the letter of mark is and how that relates to a privateer? Right. So a letter of mark was granted by a government official. Sometimes that was directly from the crown. Sometimes that was from a colonial governor uh, who had the authority to issue them. But it was a letter that stated you have the legal authority to attack the vessels of X nation. Uh, this was typically given during times of war. Um, so it was a means of supplementing the naval forces and allowing the government to attack their enemy vessels. Um, so, and so th this is a widespread practice. This isn't just a couple of nations doing this. This is this is accepted throughout, uh, as you say, the, the, uh, most nations, and actually is a, a part of what we would call the law of nations or even the law of the sea. Yes, absolutely. And then a pirate then would be someone who is, doesn't have that kind of official paperwork and is just, as you say, disrupting commerce because they want to. Is, is their motivation, is it, is, it, is it purely greed or do they have other kinds of motivations that are driving what they're doing against uh, potentially other nations or even their own people? Um, the motivations varied from pirate to pirate. Some of it was about greed, um, the attempt to make a better life for themselves, their families. Uh, for some of them, it was about the nation and in support of their nation against enemies uh, throughout the Atlantic world. Um, and for some, it was just a, a means of escape from the drudgery or the terrible conditions on board a royal naval vessel or a merchant vessel. Um, so it really depended on the individual. I see. I see. So let's talk about some of the individuals or actually rather let's talk about the Chesapeake Bay first as a sort of geographic and historic space before we really start to dive into some of the individuals in your story. I mean, here we see. Uh, a map of the Chesapeake Bay, and this map is one of a set from the Atlantic Neptune. This actually belongs 
There is a part of the Washington Library's Richard H. Brown Revolutionary War map collection, uh, which you can see on our website, on our library website, and I encourage you to check these out. Um, you know, thinking about uh, the Chesapeake Bay, as I said, in these geographic and historic perspectives, you know, how did, how did local and international factors shape the development of Chesapeake maritime communities over the course of the period that you're studying? So pirates in the Chesapeake were part of a much larger phenomenon, what many refer to as a brotherhood uh, or the brethren of the coast. Uh, this was a very loose coalition of pirates and sometimes privateers uh, with bases in Tortuga, Nassau, and Port Royal specifically. Mm -hmm. They operated throughout the wider Atlantic world and the Indian Ocean. So the Chesapeake Bay itself encompasses roughly 200 miles from Howard to Grace, Maryland in the north to Virginia Beach, Virginia in the south. And piracy affected a number of locations throughout the Chesapeake Bay. So in Maryland, we might turn to places like Palmer's Island, Annapolis, Baltimore, uh, Fells Point. In Virginia, we, we might look to Richmond or Williamsburg or Chincoteague. Um, but essentially, what made the, the Chesapeake such a prime location for piracy was the fact that it had the accessibility. Um, there are a lot mm -hmm. of inlets and islets that made it easy for pirates to escape um, officials who were sent after them. Um, the economy of the Chesapeake was based on that accessibility, primarily tobacco, of course, uh, which made it a convenient space for importing and exporting goods and people across the Atlantic. Um, access to fresh water and fertile soil made the Chesapeake Bay particularly agriculturally productive. Um, so tobacco, again, being one of those prime agricultural products. And large-scale tobacco plantations began popping up throughout the Chesapeake along the rivers and shorelines uh, throughout the late 1600s, early 1700s. On the lower western shore of Maryland, for example, a small group of landed gentry held plantations ranging from 100 acres up to 5,400 acres. So we're talking about extensive properties. Um, with the exception of a brief lull in profitability around 1680, uh, tobacco was such a profitable, profitable product that pirates would seize those goods and attempt to resell them throughout other parts of the Chesapeake. Um, they might also seize those goods and try to sell them throughout parts of the Caribbean. So tobacco really was a, a prime motivating factor for a lot of pirates early on. Um, and so piracy and tobacco sort of went hand in hand early on in the Chesapeake. Well, it's a fascinating story. And as I was reading the book, I was thinking about the you know, distinctions between legitimate and illegitimate, you know, commerce. Uh, and one of the things that was particularly interested in was the, the extent to how you describe that, that pirates connected the Chesapeake uh, to places far flung, even to the Indian Ocean. Uh, you know, my colleague at, at UVA at the University of Virginia, Randy Flaherty, studies uh, uh, early American maritime culture and traces how legitimate American merchants are dealing with traders in the Indian Ocean. But I, I had no idea that pirates were doing the same thing, and I was kind of wondering if you would if you would speak to that a little bit. You know, how are pirates, uh, uh, you know, connecting these vast places together? So you have individuals. Um, the the two main pirates that I always point to when we talk about the shift from the Atlantic world to the Indian Ocean mm -hmm. is uh, Henry Avery and Captain Kidd. 
those two individuals sort of are the prominent uh, in terms of uh, who we think of. But really what they're doing is uh, traffic to the Indian Ocean has increased by the time that they are pirating. And they are operating off of the coast of Madagascar, which puts them in prime mm-hmm location for Indian Ocean trade. Um, and the Mughal emperor, his treasure fleets coming in and out of the Indian Ocean, Abd al-Ghaffur, um, Avery and Kidd in particular target his ships. And so we see this shift um, as imperial governments tend to stamp down piracy in the Atlantic world, mm-hmm. operations start to shift to the Indian Ocean where it's less regulated. I see. As that makes total sense. And this actually might be a good time to ask you, uh, over the course of your study, where did you have to go to find your sources? Because a part of the story you're telling here is a global one. Uh, the story you're telling in your forthcoming book on early modern Caribbean, also in that sense as well. And so where, where are some of the fun places you got to go um, that uh, you really enjoyed going to find your material? Uh, you know, unlike someone who might study Russia who you know, goes to St. Petersburg in the winter, Presumably, you got to go to some nice places. Uh, I did. I did. Um, so I spent the bulk of my research time in Kew, England, at the mm-hmm. National Archives there. But I also got to spend a week in the Netherlands because one of the aspects that I research is the role that the Netherlands plays in piracy. Um, I spent a week in Jamaica, and I also spent a week in Bermuda. So um, I've been fortunate to travel to some very fascinating uh, tropical places. Um, so <laughs> it was a uh, very nice researching in those regions. Well, it's a great lesson of, uh, uh, for young graduate students or anybody who wants to do research is, you know, pick, pick fun places you want to go to do your research. Maybe you like Russia in the winter. Cool. But, um, you know, certainly <laughs> I would take Bermuda and Jamaica any day. Um, I, you know, your book does cover the span from the 17th century to the 19th century, but I thought we, we might focus a little bit on the era of the American Revolution and the War of 1812, um, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, perhaps uh, because of Mount Vernon's association with George Washington. But uh, but because I, some, as someone who studies the American Revolution, I found the depiction of some of the individuals uh, in in your story particularly fascinating. I think Oftentimes, when we think about the, the naval battles of the American Revolution, and particularly in relation to the Chesapeake Bay, the one that often comes to mind is, is the September 5th, 1781 uh, battle between French and British forces, which effectively sets up uh, the siege of Yorktown a month later. And here we see a depiction here of that engagement, again, from the Richard H. Brown Rev War collection. But that really gives a false impression. I mean, one of the things I've, I learned from your book is that uh, there's a, a ongoing conflict between loyalists and patriots on the water in, pirate, in the guise of pirates, in the guise of privateers. Sometimes they're shifting back and forth between uh, these two definitions, as we, as we discussed earlier. And so I'm wondering if we could talk for a moment about the career of Joseph Whalen Jr. and how he kind of you know, demonstrates these blurred lines between patriots and loyalists and the illegal and the illegal nature of piracy uh, during the revolution. Right. So Captain Joseph Whalen Jr. was described as a tall, slim, gallows-looking fellow who often wore a gold lace jacket. Um, he, however, denied being a pirate. 
according to Wayland, he was uh, a privateer who held a good commission from the British to seize any vessels in the bay. Um, so Wayland was perhaps one of the most notorious loyalist privateers, uh, also known as a picaroon. Um, he began his career in the summer of 1776, when in command of a small fleet, he landed unopposed on Hopkins Island. There, he and his men seized as many as 60 cattle, two men, and everything else that was valuable. So he sort of demonstrates the operations on land that I mentioned previously. Mm -hmm. uh, Wayland's attacks were unpredictable, and his depredations were considered quite violent. Uh, with each new success, Wayland gained the support of other loyalists throughout the bay. Uh, while he was hanging around Nanticoke Point, Wayland fell in with numerous other loyalist picaroons who had laid siege to the Central Bay. Um, during one period, he seized the ship of John White to outfit as a new vessel to join his crew. He planned to add a total of 16 guns and protect the loyalists throughout the bay from the uh, American privateers who they considered to be pirates. Uh, he continued plundering along the eastern shore, and while cruising off the coast of Smith Island, he caught sight of a boat laden with tar and planks, which he felt would be very profitable and very helpful to him. Uh, before the vessel's captain, Morris Yell, had time to react, Wayland and his men had descended upon the ship and had seized it for their own taking. <clears throat> After combining aboard Yell's ship, uh, or... Whelan first asked if they had seen Lord Dunmore's fleet, um, wow. which Yell had replied that not only had he seen the fleet, but that's why he was in the location that he was in. He was trying to escape from uh, that fleet. Um, when Yell provided a vague answer, Whelan tried again, and he asked Yell which he thought was right, the king or the shirtmen, which meant the Americans. Mm -hmm. And this time, Yell responded that he thought the Americans were right, which gave him all the ammunition he needed to seize all the goods on board Yell's <laughs> ship. So not so good for Yell. Uh, Whalen revealed that he had a commission from Lord Dunmore to take any vessel belonging to the rebels and to destroy whatever he felt he needed to destroy. Uh, Whalen took the papers. He took Yell's pocketbook with about 40 shillings in cash and all the clothes belonging to yell and his men except for what they had on so he was not the not the most kind individual to engage with uh later that summer wayland was back to his plundering ways um but essentially wayland made his way throughout the chesapeake to the carolinas where he was ultimately apprehended which put an end to his sort of tyrannical reign mm -hmm. uh, on the chesapeake What's fascinating about his, his career, I, I find that it, he really shows how the definition of pirate is really in the eye of the beholder. Uh, if right. you are an American, he is a pirate. Or I should say, if you are a, an American rebel, he is a pirate. Uh, if, if you're Whalen, the American rebels are, in fact, the pirates, and he is a privateer fighting for king and country. Um, yes, and, it, and it, it goes to show that, that the Chesapeake was more than just a, a scene of uh, of the great naval battle in September 1781. This was a, an ongoing conflict. I mean, his his career spans right. What 1776 through the through the 1780s before, yes, uh, where it's over. So how how are the actions of men like Wayland shaping the course of the war in the Chesapeake Bay and, and in the in the surrounding region? So the American Revolution 
tends to be viewed through an us versus them lens yeah. uh, in which the proud patriotic American colonists rebelled against the British. Um, the importance of the privateers to the American cause is seen in the American Revolution. Uh, when we think about privateers during the American Revolution, we tend to think about the thousands of individuals who volunteered their time, their money, their vessels, and their lives in support of the Continental Navy and the revolutionary cause. Uh, we don't tend to think about the loyalist privateers uh, mm -hmm. very often. Um, certainly, these privateers were an important component in the war uh, because they're not only supplementing the American naval forces, but they're contending with the British Royal Navy, which is one of the most powerful naval forces in the world. Um, and they're having to deal with the British Navy and the Loyalist privateers at the same time. Um, Admiral Howe's 1777 invasion of the Chesapeake further led Loyalists or further fed Loyalist sentiment in the region. And when British General Alexander Leslie arrived in the Bay in fall of 1780, the presence of 2,500 soldiers and the Royal Navy was enough to renew the spirits of any faltering Loyalists mm -hmm. in the region. Um, of course, these men were considered pirates by the Patriots, just like the actions of the American privateers were considered piracy by the British. Um, of the six colonies who hosted home bases for privateering missions, uh, two major point ports were found in Baltimore, Maryland, and in Richmond, Virginia. Nearly 1,700 letters of mark were issued uh, to American privateers during the war. Over 55,000 men answered the call to join these privateering ventures, and over 800 vessels were outfitted to serve as privateers. So uh, in Maryland alone, over 224 letters of mark were issued, which gives you a sense of how important the Chesapeake was to the privateering ventures during the American Revolution. Um, also, the Baltimore Clipper, which was a type of schooner, was a particularly popular vessel among privateers during the American Revolution. Um, the superior construction and sailing abilities of the Baltimore schooner uh, or the Baltimore clipper was just one of the reasons that Baltimore became such an important hub during the war. Um, privateers were particularly crucial to the Chesapeake Bay in terms of preserving themselves against enemy pirates, privateers, and the Royal Navy because the Chesapeake Bay really found itself sort of defenseless against the Royal Navy. Maryland's state Navy was all but non-existent, save mm -hmm. for two small vessels. Um, the rest had been auctioned off. <laughs> so they really left themselves in a bit of a pickle. Um, same for Virginia. They didn't have a very strong naval presence in Virginia. And so the privateers really supplemented the Chesapeake Bay uh, naval forces. Well, that's really incredible. And I, I was particularly taken uh, by this notion that the, the Baltimore becomes a central hub for this kind of activity based on their production of these particular kind of, of vessels. Uh, and I'm sure that those you know, those who were able to ply the waters in those inlets that we talked about earlier, and certainly rivers, and, and outmaneuver British warships or you know competing American vessels at the same time as well. And actually, let uh, let's play with Baltimore a little bit because I did want to talk about the sequel, War of 1812, uh, a few years later. I mean, one of the points you make in the book is that American pirates, so this this time citizens of the United States especially those based out of Baltimore, really frustrated the British during the War of 1812. And in what ways did they do so, and what were the consequences of their actions 
for the Chesapeake's residents. So the British announced in 1805 that American merchants who carried goods from enemy ports would be forced to show papers stating that the goods were bound for the U.S. And if they couldn't produce those papers, then, of course, the British uh, gave themselves the right to seize that vessel. Um, American merchants in particular were uh, incurring significant losses to these so-called British privateers. Um, who the Americans, of course, believed to be no better than just pirates, mm -hmm. um, particularly as they began to impress American sailors into service of the Royal Navy or British merchant vessels. Um, so requiring the men to show paperwork that they were, in fact, American citizens was very problematic since not a lot of these men had such paperwork. Sure. So in 1807, of course, President Thomas Jefferson instituted a series of embargoes, which he hoped would help to stave off war. Um, in 1809, of course, James Madison is elected, and he continues Jefferson's trade prohibitions, which, while it was meant to uh, punish England and France for violating American neutrality, uh, the implications were really terrible for American merchants. Yeah. Um, so we enter the war in 1812, but the new nation itself was really ill-prepared to take on the Royal Navy, uh, ultimately relying very heavily on privateers again. President Madison recognized the importance of privateers and personally signed each commission that he issued. Um, Anyone who wanted a commission, all they had to do was apply to the Secretary of State and submit information about the ship and the crew, and they would be granted a license. Mm -hmm. uh, the letter of mark was extremely important because if a ship was captured by an enemy ship and could produce their official letter of mark, it would technically be treated as a combatant vessel, uh, and they would be treated as prisoners of war as opposed to being treated as pirates. Oh, okay. um, yeah, so... The legality issue here was very important in terms of preventing uh, the Americans from being considered pirates. Although, of course, the British often overlooked those letters of mark, claiming them to be fraudulent. Um, it was very easy for them to uh, deny their legitimacy. Uh, the actions of these privateers really contrasted sharply with the performance of the U.S. military on land and prominent merchants invested very heavily in their success. Mm. Pirate smugglers and privateers played really celebrated roles, defeating the British from the Battle of Baltimore to the Battle of New Orleans, and they became folk heroes among local populations. And so, in particular, privateers coming from Baltimore were really a thorn in the side of the British. London newspapers frequently denounced Baltimore as, quote, a nest of pirates, which sent out its wasps to sting British commerce on every sea, end quote. Um, so the British attack in, of Baltimore in September of 1814 was, at least in part, intended to punish the city for its role in producing privateers for the War of 1812. That's really amazing. Uh, and and I, I had no idea that actually President Madison had signed all of those papers himself, which just gave the British another reason to be ticked off at the guy for getting them involved in a, in a side war when they had bigger Napoleonic problems to deal with at the same time. And yeah. one of the things I wanted to talk about, too, with, with respect to Baltimore and, and its commemoration of the privateers and the, and the pirates who defended it and harassed the British was that there is a, a real connection, as we might suspect, uh, between race, slavery, and piracy in the Ches Chesapeake. You know, certainly the Chesapeake 
that economy in part is powered by slave labor. Uh, but there's a gentleman named George R. Roberts that you talk about who fought in the War of 1812. And how does he help us to understand those kinds of connections? So piracy and slavery are really intimately tied together. And we know that some pirates would free enslaved peoples and sometimes allow them to join their crews, whereas other pirates were more than happy to participate in the enslavement of these people. Um, the Chesapeake Bay, of course, relied very heavily on the forced labor of enslaved black men and women, even children. Um, so what we're seeing with uh, George R. Roberts is that he served on the Chasseur as a gunner during the uh, famous blockade of England in August of 1814. He was a free black man. Um, he was noted as displaying the most intrepid courage and daring and was later thought highly of by the citizen soldiery of Baltimore. So he was even one of the few defenders of Baltimore to have his portrait taken by a photographer. Um, before serving on the Chasseur, Roberts was a member of Captain Richard Moon's privateer, Sarah Ann. Um, while serving on the Sarah Ann in the Caribbean, uh, Roberts was part of the seizure of a British ship carrying sugar and coffee. The battle took only three hours, even though the Sarah Ann had only one gun compared to the 10 aboard the British Elizabeth that they were seizing. They delivered the prize to uh, Savannah in Georgia and then returned to the sea in September of 1812, where they came across the HMS Statira. Mm -hmm. Roberts was among six American seamen accused of being British subjects, uh, taken prisoner and brought to Jamaica in irons. Uh, the men denied, of course, being British, and the captain even remarked about Roberts, quote, I know him to be native-born of the United States, and of which he had every sufficient document together with his free papers. Uh, he entered on board the Sarah Ann in Baltimore, where he is married, and so then Moon, the captain, and his men retaliated and seized 12 British subjects, putting them in close confinement uh, to be detained as hostages, Ultimately, prisoners get exchanged. Roberts arrives in Charleston, South Carolina in November of 1812 and eventually returns to Baltimore. It is unknown sort of what happens to Roberts after this, mm -hmm. um, but he did become a local hero and was allowed to participate as one of the old defenders of Baltimore in 1814 during parades, which commemorated the anniversary for many years. And, uh, What's interesting about Roberts is that he's not the only black Marylander to serve as a privateer during the War of 1812. He's joined by men like Percy Sullivan and Henry James of the Tartar, Charles Ball, who fought at the battles of St. Leonard's Creek, Bladensburg, and Baltimore with the U.S. Chesapeake Flotilla, uh, and Gabriel Rulson and Caesar Wentworth, who served respective, uh, respectfully as landsmen and cook in the U.S. Chesapeake Flotilla in 1814. Um, there are also countless black mechanics uh, who kept vessels afloat like George Anderson, Solomon Johnson, Alicia Rohde, and Jack Murray. And each of the men served in the Fells Point shipyards as naval mechanics. And Murray also became one of the defenders of, of the old defenders of Baltimore. Mm -hmm. So black Marylanders in particular were playing a very pivotal role in the War of 1812. So do we know, that, were these all free people or were they some of them enslaved? And, and 
uh, you know, if they're free, if, regardless of freedom or slavery, I mean, were they, you know, fighting, do they see themselves as fighting for citizenship, for inclusion in the United States as full-fledged Americans? Of the men that we know about, they were known to be free black men of Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um, Maryland had a very complicated history with slavery, of course, where mm-hmm. um, slavery was a very big part of their economy. But at the same time, there was a large free black population in Maryland. Um, so I would say that these men saw themselves fighting not only for the nation, but also to prove themselves as worthy of citizenship. Exactly. I think so. Well, I do want to get to some audience questions here in just a couple of minutes, but I have, I have two more questions for you, Jamie, and then I'll see the floor okay. to a fine audience. Um, you know, so I've lived in Virginia for 10 years now, and I confess that I had no idea what the oyster wars were. And I didn't know what they were until I read your book. And so for idiots like me who didn't know or who may be uh, you know, living in the UK or in Alaska or some other part of the, of the nation or the world, can you, uh, can you give us uh, just a sort of a brief sense of what the oyster wars uh, were and, and, um, and what, what we've been missing all this time? So the oyster wars were based on two different uh, problems in terms of oyster harvesting in the Chesapeake Bay region. Uh, Maryland and Virginia wanted to stop the threat of outside competition in the 1830s. So they passed a series of laws uh, limiting oyster harvesting to state residents only. Uh, They had a big problem with New Englanders in particular who had over harvested their own oysters coming to the Chesapeake Bay and really destroying the, the oyster beds. Uh, the other issue is that there's two different types of oyster catching. There's tonging and there's dredging. The tonging method was preferred by the governments of Maryland and Virginia because you had one or two men working, they worked in shallow waters, and they're taking you know a few oysters at a time. They're mm-hmm. uh, not messing with the bed of the oysters. Whereas dredging, of course, you're taking a, a piece of machinery and dredging an entire oyster bed, which is very destructive. So those who were dredging and those who were from New England were considered oyster pirates. Um, So the oyster wars were were really about the Maryland and Virginia governments attempting to suppress these illegal types of oyster harvesting. is Is it fair to say then that this is as much an attempt to suppress piracy as it is a kind of early form of state-sponsored conservation efforts? Absolutely. And then it, probably the, the what we're seeing today in terms of trying to restore the bay and especially the oyster beds and whatnot to, you know, to improve the health of the Chesapeake, or, you know, these people are the forerunners of that effort. Absolutely. I mean, March 2018 marked 150 years since the establishment of Maryland's Oyster Navy, which was a forerunner of the Maryland Department of Natural Resources Police. So... Um, definitely early conservationist efforts. Wow, that's incredible. Well, uh, before uh, we get to the audience here, and I promise uh, it's going to happen here in just a couple of minutes, I did want to ask you one final question because I know that you're not done with pirates yet. Uh, and so would you uh, would you give us a sense of what's next on the horizon for you? So I just submitted an article to a major journal hoping to get that published, but um, I have two major projects on the horizon. Uh, the first is a bookazine for the National Geographic. Um, they are putting out a bookazine on piracy and shipwrecks, and so I will be responsible for putting that together. 
And then the other is that the History Press has also asked me to produce a book on Pirates of the Mid-Atlantic, so focusing on New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. Very cool. We look forward to those when they come out, uh, hopefully soon. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Jamie. This has been fun. But now let's actually bring in the audience and see what's on their mind. So uh, let's uh, let's turn to some audience questions. Gregory would like to know, what were the general attitudes among the public about privateers operating under a letter of mark? Was such privateering considered socially shameful? Uh, actually, quite the opposite. Privateering was viewed as an honorable profession. Um, they were viewed as doing the work of the nation and uh, preserving the safety of the region. So uh, the general attitude among the public about privateers was that uh, they were sort of a useful tool in, mm -hmm. in protection and safety. So they were the good guys, certainly. Yes. Um, in Baltimore, if you call the privateers who operated uh, throughout the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, if you call them pirates, they get very angry. <laughs> I imagine so. <laughs> right. Thank you, Gregory. All righty. Corey would like to know, uh, wondering what percentage of pirates were women? Unfortunately, it's impossible to know since most women who would join crews would join as men. Um, so, I mean, for example, the only known female pirates in the Atlantic world that we know about are Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. Um, we know of a couple of female pirates in uh, the China, South China Sea, Qingxi, but really, unfortunately, we just have no way of knowing how many women actually served as pirates. Now, did they not reveal their identities because laws prohibited of such, or there was was it a social uh, social controls as well that you know prohibited women from joining pirate crews? I think it was social control more than anything. Um, if you look to mariner culture, there's a real superstition about having women aboard vessels, uh, it being bad luck. So I think that if women did join pirate crews, they disguise themselves as men so as to avoid that situation. Makes sense. Well, thank you, Corey, very much. All right. John would like to know, were many Chesapeake pirates brought to justice? What was generally the penalty for piracy? Ooh, this is a, a number. One. Yeah, a number were brought to justice, although probably not as many as the Chesapeake governments would have liked. Um, but the general penalty for piracy was hanging. Um, they they tended to have a very low threshold for or toleration for piracy, particularly the later we go into the the golden age of piracy. Um, some pirates were fortunate enough to get off with sort of a slap on the wrist, but mm. the, the vast majority faced the hangman's noose. That's not a fun end. <laughs> Thank you, John. Scarlett would like to know, uh, could you discuss how some pirates formed mutually beneficial relationships with people in power, like governors, and why these local officials would consider such agreements? So for those government officials who considered such agreements, it was really in their best interest. Um, for some of them, it was a means of securing and stabilizing their own power. Um, because uh, if you look to the tenure of a colonial governor, it tended to be very short. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you had pirates on your side who could bring in goods and, and money to your economy, and you could prove yourself a worthwhile colonial governor, that was to your best interest. 
Um, for a lot of governments in, or for a lot of islands in the Caribbean, uh, they faced embargoes during times of war. Uh, they didn't get the protection they needed from the Royal Navy, so they turned to pirates as a means of protecting the islands and bringing in goods and services that they might otherwise be missing out on because of embargoes. Great. Well, thank you very much, Scarlett. Adam would like to know, can you speak to the role of the golden age of piracy had on uh, sparking the revolution? Did colonists sometimes feel like the Royal Navy hadn't done all they could to protect them from pirates? Um, so I would say that the golden age of piracy not didn't necessarily spark the revolution, but was really helpful in uh, its trajectory, if you will, um, just because uh, some colonists felt like the Royal Navy hadn't done enough to protect them from pirates, but really most of the colonists were happy with the pirates. They were bringing in a lot of goods um, that they were denied because of whether, again, whether that was embargoes because of the the British being at war with the nation um, or what have you. So I feel like a lot of the colonists felt a camaraderie with the pirates. Mm -hmm. And uh, in particular, uh, you see New York as a major nest of pirates, Baltimore as a major nest of pirates. And people were supportive of them because they were bringing in important goods and services. Is there a relationship between pirates and smugglers? Are they, are they kindred spirits in some sense? I would argue yes. Um, there is a historian who argues that smuggling and piracy are two distinct ventures and you can never view them as the same thing. But I would argue that pirates often worked as smugglers. Like they are bringing in goods and they're having to smuggle those goods in in order to be able to then sell those goods. So I don't necessarily see them as distinct ventures all the time. I think mm -hmm. there is some overlap between piracy and smuggling. Well, great. Well, thank you, Adam, very much for your question. And Cynthia would like to know, to what extent did American merchants profit from privateers during the war? What sort of cut uh, did the privateers take? So American merchants profited quite, quite nicely from privateers during the war, especially those who set up the privateering ventures themselves. Um, privateers, it depended on the negotiation between whoever uh, owned the vessel and whoever uh, captained the vessel, but privateers tended to take probably 10, maybe 15% cut. The rest would be divided between the owner of the vessel and the government. I see. Thank you, Cynthia, very much. And just a reminder, folks, we still have plenty of time for questions, so please get them in at your convenience. And let's see what's next. Bayless would like to know, uh, can you talk more about the role of Netherlands in piracy? So many pirates were from the Netherlands. We know that the crews were multinational in nature. Uh, we tend to focus, of course, on the English pirates because that's where the sources tend to be. Um, those are the names we tend to know. But in my research, I found a significant number of men from the Netherlands who participated in these pirate voyages. Um, the Netherlands, of course, they are trying their best to set up uh, economically viable islands in the Caribbean. They're mm -hmm. attempting to uh, compete with the English, with the Spanish, with the French. Um, so they're using piracy to their advantage to try to knock out the competition. Great. Well, thank you, Bellis, very much. 
Uh, Janet mentioned, you mentioned that some pirates became folk heroes. Do you suppose this is how pirates eventually became commercially popular? Absolutely. Um, I mean, pirates were just as popular during their time period as they've been today. Um, one of the most famous books about pirates that came out came out contemporary uh, during the contemporary period, and it was uh, Captain Charles Johnson's A General History of Pirates. And it was a bestseller. People loved reading his work. Um, so I think the reason that they were so popular then is the same reason they're so popular now. It would just, just different marketing strategies these days in terms of <laughs> streaming on Netflix or Disney Plus or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cynthia's back for another question. How do privateers chart their course or mark or mark their route so that they avoided competition and stayed away from any naval battle phrase? How do they navigate waters to avoid capture? Um, so... They tended to navigate uh, in ways that uh, would prevent their capture. So they're looking to uncharted waters or looking to waters that are less frequented. Typically, um, if they know that there's any naval vessels nearby, um, this is why, of course, they make use of inlets and islets and rivers. Um, but really, they they couldn't always avoid competition or naval battles. And so really it was just a matter of could they hold their own when they came across those kinds of vessels? Well, that does make me think about uh, a, a pirate's or even any seaman's training uh, during this period. I mean, what, how, what age would someone go to sea? You know, what would their early career be, so to speak? You know, how would they work their way up to some kind of position of authority? Yeah, I mean, we have some known pirates who started at the tender age of 10. Wow. <laughs> so they, they started young. Um, many of these individuals had worked some form of water-based profession their whole lives. And so um, most of the pirates started out not pirates, but they started out in the Royal Navy. They started out on merchant vessels. They started out working in shipyards. And uh, many of them just became tired of lack of pay, uh, terrible treatment. Uh, so they might mutiny on board the Royal Naval vessel or on board their merchant vessel. Um, and they were of varying ages. I mean, like I said, you have some that go as young as 10, 12, 13 years old um, to some that are in their 50s. So it just sort of depended on whether or not they could hold their own among mm -hmm. the crew. And speaking of these folks that turned pirate, I mean, were they were these spontaneous choices, as you say, they were serving in the Royal Navy and they just had it for lack of pay and, and terrible provisions, or were they recruited at some kind of network and that brought them into the guild or the brotherhood? It just depended. Some of it was very spontaneous. It was very spur of the moment sort of decision. For some of them, they were recruited. Um, I know Stead Bonnet, for example, he hired a pirate crew. He paid a crew to join him, which is the most, it was the worst way to gather a pirate crew. But um, yeah, he paid for them to come join him. Sometimes you just got to pay for your folks. Daniel would like to know, pirates are obviously greatly misunderstood because of the image Hollywood has created. What do you feel is the biggest misconception of pri uh, piracy or privateering? 
there, there are so many, and most of it has to do with uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. But I would say one of the biggest misconceptions is that pirates talked a certain way. Yeah. Um, the reality is we have pirates from all over England, from all over France, from all over Spain, the Netherlands. They're speaking in any different language. Um, they probably talked just like any other mariner might talk. There's no special pirate lingo. So are you saying here and now that international talk like a pirate day is a complete and utter lie? It is, although it is still one of my favorite holidays. <laughs> so, all right, Daniel, thank you very much. Great question. What's next? John would like to know how large of a crew did an effective pirate ship need to have? Um, really, it depended on the size of the ship, honestly. Um, you might be able to make uh, a great venture on a smaller vessel with a crew of 10 people. It depend If your vessel was larger, you might need 20 or 30. Um, you typically didn't want a crew too large because the larger your crew, the more ways you have to split the booty, right? So, like, the more people you have on board, the more you have to split the share, Um so the smaller, the better. Was it an equitable distribution, or how did that how did that divvying up work? Uh, so, at least according to the records we have, the pirates would draw up pirate codes for the ship, and it would determine the distribution of loot. Sometimes it was purely equitable, um, where even captain and the crew all got the same amount. Sometimes it was divided between crew got one sh size of the share, captain got another size of the share. Um, so it, it really just depended from crew to crew. So is there some, some kind of democratic process at work here on these pirate ships? At least according to Marcus Redeker, it was a very egalitarian system. Um, I would say that not all pirate ships were as egalitarian as he makes them out to be, um, but that by and large, uh, there was votes taken mm -hmm. um, in terms of who would be captain, votes on where they would go next, um, votes on how things would be divvied up. So it was fairly egalitarian based on some of the evidence that we have. That's well, fascinating. We have these records, too, to actually understand some of these processes. Well, thank you, John, very much. Uh, Samuel would like to know, what was the most surprising historical materials you found uh, within your research? That's a fun question. Um, so... Some of the most fun stuff that I got to work with were pirate trials and getting to see the legal aspect of what happens once they were caught um, and the process through which they would be tried and then ultimately executed. Um, I would say some of the most fun things that I came across were different names, um, particularly watching Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, I came across a man named William Turner in my work, and I thought that that was hilarious. <laughs> So, yeah, um, little things like that really brought me joy um, and surprise when I was working in the historical materials. Do you look like Orlando Bloom? <laughs> if only I had a picture. Yeah. So in a lot of these uh, records, these are probably admiralty court records. Is that when things yes. are condemned? Yeah, a lot of my records were admiralty court records or colonial office records. Mm -hmm. I used those quite a bit, too. Yeah, Admiralty Court records are great because there's just some stuff in there that you wouldn't expect to find otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. So get thee to Q and check those out, folks. All right, we've got time for one more question. Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Hey, guys, I heard tales of sunken treasures in the Bay. Are there any well-known pirate wrecks in the Bay? 
Um, I don't know if there's any well-known pirate wrecks in the bay that we can definitively say are there, but there's lots of rumors about sunken pirate ships in the bay um, or buried treasure throughout the bay. Um, I forget his name off the top of my head now, um, but there's a man who supposedly buried his treasure on Chincoteague Island, and it's one of the locations where people routinely go with their uh, metal detectors and and shovels trying to find this man's treasure. So there are definitely rumors about sunken treasures throughout the bay. I guess that's a challenge for anyone who wants to try to find that, uh, but do so safely, unlike that yes. treasure hunt out <laughs> west recently. Well, Jamie, uh, thank you very much. This has been an absolutely delightful evening, and, and thanks for joining us this evening. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And I just want to thank the audience, too, as well. You guys have been great, as always, and thanks so much for your terrific questions. And uh, thanks, as well, to the folks behind the scenes, including Jeanette Patrick, Sam Snyder, uh, Jamie Morris, who's our intern from Washington College. Very exciting. Uh, thanks all for the work that you've done over the course of this evening. Uh, just a couple of announcements as we're rounding the third and heading for home here. Uh, as many of you might know, Mount Vernon is reopening. We are entering our reopening phase. Right now, the grounds are open. But on, uh, I think, this Friday, June the 26th, we will be opening up some of the museum spaces, so do uh, be sure to check out mountainvernon.org for details if you'd like to come and visit us, and we certainly hope that you do. Now, just because Mount Vernon's reopening, uh, that doesn't mean we're going to stop doing live streams. In fact, we found that we actually like them a great deal, and so we may not do them as frequently as we have been over the last few weeks or a few months at this point. Time is meaningless uh, these days, but uh, you'll see more from us uh, down the road. Uh, we're looking forward to having some more fantastic talks with authors like Jamie Goodall in the future, and including next week, actually, on June the 30th at 7 p.m. I encourage all of you to join us back here uh, on these channels for our annual Martha Washington lecture. Uh, we'll have uh, four uh, stellar historians discussing Mary Ball Washington, George Washington's mother, uh, including Craig Shirley, uh, Martha Saxon, and Charlene Boyer-Lewis, and it will be moderated by my colleague, Karen Wolf, of the, the executive director of the Omohundra Institute of Early American History and Culture in Williamsburg. So please do check that out. It's going to be a very exciting event. Jamie, once again, thanks so much. Uh, stay safe, and thanks for all you're doing, and thanks for all the, the service uh, of your husband as well, who's in the United States Army. Uh, we look forward to seeing you all uh, very soon back at Mount Vernon. Good night, everyone. Thanks for joining in, and uh, good night and good luck. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hildebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, you may do so by making a contribution to Mount Vernon. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.